There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Mika Simmons and welcome to season five of the Happy Vagina podcast. Coming up, we have star of Grey's Anatomy and Emily in Paris, Kate Walsh, and we do a deep dive into how she's managed early menopause, the joys of being child-free, and the life-threatening medical gaslighting that left her fighting for a scan, which revealed a benign brain tumour. But first, I'd like to tell you a little bit about our sponsor this week. As you know, this is an independent podcast and I only work with brands I absolutely love, so I am thrilled to introduce you to Beja London. Beja is a London-based lingerie and swimwear brand for all body shapes with cup sizes from AA up to 36H. I've been wearing Beja for the last few months and the perfect fit and support of the bra with just a hint of lift, simply designed with just a touch of sass, makes them perfect for day to night, under a t-shirt or for a hot date with yourself. If you're unsure of your size, they also offer a 20-minute online bra fitting to make sure you get the right shape and size to ensure you feel you're most content and empowered. Just go to www.beja.london. That's B-E-I-J-A. www.beja.london. And once you've chosen your bra, pull some knickers to match. Then use our code the happy vagina at checkout to receive 15% off your first order. That's the happy vagina at www.beja.london. Welcome to The Happy Vagina, a podcast dedicated to celebrating pioneers in the female space who've made a difference in women's health, equality and relationships. Each week we chat to an inspiring human being as they explore the experiences that completely change their outlook, promising not only to educate but also entertain and enlighten. And today, after much hunting down, we are joined (laughs) by the unstoppable award-winning actress, star of the Umbrella Academy, Perks of Being a Wallflower, Emily in Paris, Grey's Anatomy and Boyfume Perfume founder, Kate Walsh. Kate, welcome to the Happy Vagina. Thanks. Hi, Mika. I'm so happy we're finally connecting. (laughs) Me too. Me too. When I say to people that you're coming on my podcast, people go, I love Kate Walsh. Oh, right. Well, that's nice. (laughs) You have a kind of slightly iconic following. People are like... I'm going to start with literally the most difficult question that anyone's ever asked you. Why do you think people love you so much, Kate Walsh? And you're you're not allowed to shirk the question because the happy vagina is all about self-love. What do you think it is? I've got an idea that I'm going to share back, but what do you think it is about the work that you've done <laughs> or who you are as a person that makes human beings really warm to you? Um, that's funny that we must be psychically linked. Cause I was actually thinking about, cause I know I saw, I think I watched 
a little bit of the interview that you did with Gwyneth Paltrow. And so for her, I've always thought, oh, Gwyneth is like in the stratosphere, I always think. And um, uh, Charlize Theron and Gwyneth Paltrow, these people that are just iconic beauties and um, sort of the girls that you aspire, maybe women that you aspire to be and sometimes hate, but you're like, gosh, but I love them. And for me, I think I've just... First of all, I think I was lucky enough to come out to the world really in Shondaland in Grey's Anatomy and sort of speak her words, which are, you know, she wrote beautifully and writes beautifully for women and all people. But she writes, she has that kind of ability to write a really fallible, accessible, multifaceted person. And I think just in general, I am just not, I'm going to say average, but basic enough <laughs> that I'm accessible. They're like, you know what? I could, she could, we could hang out. Like, and people are like, you know what? She's, I could like go and have a drink with her or a coffee with her or something like it's. I'm not, I don't have like, I'm not like, oh my God, known for my, you know, six pack or like my <laughs> stratospheric <laughs> sexuality or anything. And I also think, and also just like in television, when people are on your television week after week, whether they've seen it, you know, the shows or things that I've been on before the internet, when it was just weekly, there's a familiarity and a comfort mm. and an intimacy that, that develops that people, yeah. Do you know what I mean? I don't know. Mm. That's that's what I'm. I think that's, that's a really fantastic answer. You're relatable, but you are also. Yeah. And my answer to my own question is that I think that you are extraordinarily brave in the way that you shared about some of the things that happened in your life. And I think that you're a bit of a trailblazer for that reason because you've talked about some things which we're going to touch on in a minute, a bit later, that are potentially a bit taboo, particularly when you were speaking about them may not have been brave enough to speak about. And so I think for many women, you're someone who has kind of paved the way for it to be okay to be open. And that's why I love you. And we are going to touch on those things that I've just mentioned. But before we get going, we're going to dig a little bit deeper into some of your life choices in a totally binary quiz that actually doesn't mean anything at all. But I tend to find it does enhance the podcast and bring out some very interesting responses. So Kate Walsh, are you ready for the either or happy vagina quiz? Yes, I'm ready. Okay, great. First question, thong or brief? Thong. Any reason for that? Well, I wear a particular brand of, uh, can you say panties or I like to say underpants just to really make it unattractive underpants. <laughs> That's what my grandmother called them. She would always incidentally say, take your underpants off at nighttime. You got to let it breathe. Let it breathe. Yes. That's, that's it. Yes. That. Okay. So ding dong. Um, Conchetta Bocchetto quoted. Um, <laughs> so that's my Italian grandmother in case you're wondering all those, all those vowels, but they're lace stretch and it's a thong, but it, it just happens to not cut into, you know, I have high hips like the elusive tree climbing leopard or the Serengeti. And so by <laughs> this, the, what I also call like the ring of fire, the little bit of fat that's right around there, like just around the belly and the, mm-hmm. it doesn't cut into it and leave an unsightly lump that makes me just feel really self-conscious. So that's why I prefer, um, the thong. Yeah. Because it's not like a string would be cutting into that that area and it would make me feel like I was in a sausage in a casing. So, yeah. Mm, I do wear a string sometimes. Yeah, I know. I feel like I just should, but now everything, I'm getting inspired by everyone just like 
there's so much body positivity that I'm like, oh, it really is has changed radically, you know, from this ideal of per, to perfection radically. and smoothness. Even though there is all that still with everything, like sort of people are looking more and more like mannequins, but there's still like this. Uh, I like this. I like what's happening in the culture with young women and older women and like lady lumps and loving it all, you know? Me too. And Kate Walsh, I think I concur. We might be psychically connected because you've just mentioned smoothness. And my next question is Brazilian or Bush? <laughs> ah, I a little bit of both. I got a little <laughs> bit of both, a little bit country and a little bit rock and roll. So I, I, I like to tidy up the undercarriage, but I appreciate someone who's like into whatever it's, it's wild and woolly. <laughs> I don't want to be, I don't want to be measured on that, you know, but I do like, uh, yeah, I sort of go, yeah, a little bit of both. When it comes to menopause, HRT or au natural? Au natural, au natural. I don't have any judgment about it. I have no judgment whatsoever, but I have personal reasons for it. And I'll be happy to get into that with you. Great. I can't wait to come back to that in a minute. Yeah. Uh, Kate Walsh, G-spot or clitoral? That's a Sophie's choice. I mean, I don't know if your listeners will get that reference even because I'm only now realizing how old I am um, <laughs> whenever I say things like Sophie's choice. But I, that meaning, what do we have to choose? Yeah. Uh, I will say the G spot is high. I'd say that at the, where I am in my life right now, highly underrated and highly pleasurable. I probably only discovered the G spot in my early 40s. And I think some of that is kind of a, a sexual awakening for myself and a partner that was the mm -hmm. right type of partner and the right shape and lots of other things. But I also do think it might be a bit of an age thing that somehow or other, I don't know, I just think that our sexuality becomes, um, for me, less regular, but more potent. <laughs> somehow like <laughs> i would agree yeah uh, quality versus quantity um more refined more it's a totally different thing i feel like that's one of the things that i'm just experiencing in general whether it's about se around sexuality or around anything in life is that it's constantly evolving i am constantly evolving i realize like i'm a little bit like the sea which is always different every day and they're you're like oh rather than I think when you're younger, maybe I was less conscious when I was younger too, definitely, but that you just sort of expect things to be a little more linear. And then you're like, oh no, everything's a little more mercurial and, and fluid and liquid and, and beautiful. Yeah. If you can surrender to it, you have to, otherwise it makes it really difficult because <laughs> it's always changing. Yeah. Also, as you just referenced about body positivity, like I think when I was in my twenties, there wasn't the kind of sexual revolution that was going on for women that it was that pleasure was our birthright I mean it feels absolutely insane saying that right now but I think probably I hope that the younger generations now are benefiting from that messaging that's out there along with the body positivity that actually they deserve to have as much pleasure as their partner I'm talking about heterosexual relationships of course um, but it is relevant to all the individuals as well. But I think within a lesbian couple, I would like to hope that that wasn't so much of a conundrum, let's say. And I just think as a woman in my 40s, I'm like, I don't want to have sex unless I'm actually really getting to have as much pleasure as my partner. Yeah, I guess I don't think about it like it's so quantitative. I think of it more like communication and intimacy around it and really communicating. And I think definitely there is that area of entitlement and feeling like 
so it's not more like I want mine, I want to grab it, but I think it is around communication. And I think that in culture, even as evolved as we are, and there's all sorts of, there's like this, you know, extreme, like there's more talk and more of a marketplace for sex toys and all sorts of things and porn and people are ready. It's in the zeitgeist. It's like a regular habit for some people, but we're still only just starting to have conversations about sex. And it's still like, we're like uh, baby teenagers from like the forties or fifties. Like when you're talking, you know what I mean? I think that that is something that's still evolving in the culture or just starting to happen that there's still like this shy tea or like, Oh, am I allowed to, or, you know, and um, yeah, I don't know. I'm experienced. I, I'm, I'm expressing my own observation and experience and, and there's not a lot of chat about it. Mm-hmm. There just isn't mm-hmm. still. Like, right? Your mm. podcast, you're talking about mm. it. But there's, so it's good. It's mm. good to talk about it. It's changing. Because there's not a lot of places to go. Even if you have a question, you're like, hey, I have this question. Who do I ask? Yeah. You know? Emily Morse is the answer. My answer. Sex with Emily. Emily Morse. Follow her on Instagram immediately. Okay. I think <laughs> I might have seen her maybe because I followed. Okay. I've heard of her. But the other thing is going back, circling back, pun intended, to the G-spot or not. Or yeah, I guess it would be more clitoral. But anyway, the G-spot. I was told by an integrative medicine doctor years ago that it is very important for women to regularly have stimulation, vaginal stimulation, in order for releasing hormones, certain hormones like um, not just oxytocin, but relactin and other hormones that are critical for our bodies and brains and everything to kind of run so beyond a like clitoral versus G spot, that it's actually important to have that vaginal internal stimulation. Um, there's only certain certain and for calcium for all sorts of things. So I don't know if there's a lot of veracity to that, but I I bought it. I was like, okay, there is. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, and particularly, I think as women get older, as the libido as we've described, changes. It it wanes, pleasure gets more, but actually it's really, really important to make sure that you are experiencing pleasure, even if you're single, because pleasure does not need to be with a partner. You can, you know, it's still considered to be sex and you'll still get all the same results, all the same hormones are released by self-pleasure. My final question is the most ridiculous of the binary questions. And it's <laughs> vibrator or vegetable? Oh my God, V or V. I am, <laughs> is there a choice of just hand? There is <laughs> There's no? Yes. Okay. I, I mean, yeah, is, my, is, is a hand considered a vegetable? Um, yeah, I would say, I, I would, yeah, I'd say old school, analog, hand. analog. <laughs> Me too. Me too, but keep sending me vibrators. I love trying them. (laughs) (laughs) I'm up for it. Thank you so much, Kate Walsh. You scored 100% in your quiz about yourself. Well done. I mean, I think it's amazing that you were so insightful about you. I love winning. (laughs) I love winning. Ah, I mean, literally, hang on a second. There's something weird going on here, but you're definitely my sister from another mister because my next question, or really what I want to start opening our slightly deeper dive with you about is your work life. Because when I was thinking about what to talk to you about, I was thinking, oh, I'm going to ask Kate about how it was to like, kind of have her career start to explode late. And first of all, I thought, oh, that's a misogynistic thing to think, say, because Mika, what does late mean? She was 35. That's not late. What are we talking about here? What is this thing about being 35 and that being late? And then I thought the more interesting thing 
to talk about is actually how you stayed resilient just during the 10 years. So you, you walked out of your university degree. Um, I went to university, <laughs> saved my student loans so I could pay for myself to go to drama school. That's how like okay. I was because we couldn't afford for me to go and take the drama school place. And looking back through your career, you were working. It's not like you didn't have, but you weren't on a on a regular TV show like you have been with Grey's on and off for the past 15 years. Mm. And you've already mentioned Shondaland, which is a female run <laughs> by a woman of colour. Yeah. Production beautiful. company, which kind of transformed your life. But before that, what what were think what was it like for you? Well, okay, let me be clear too, just to set the record straight. I did not graduate from college. I dropped out. And I dropped out because I wanted, I tried to do what my parents wanted me to do. I tried to be practical and get my mother to quote her was like, get a degree in computers, whatever that meant. And you know, this was in 1985. I'm like, okay, <laughs> clearly, no, I can barely operate this thing uh, without uh, your gorgeous producer. I would be like, what, How, what buttons? How does it work? But then I sort of dabbled and tried again, still in, the, in my idea of practicality ended up being like going from a business to a poli sci to uh, what they called uh, general studies, which was sort of a triple major or three minors or something, which was like English lit because I love to read and write essays, um, art history and Italian language. And then I just ended up dropping out because I wanted to do theater and I was always acting since I was a kid, but I didn't, I have a specific taste and I didn't love the program that was happening at the university I was going to. So I, I left and I started training with this woman in Tucson, Arizona, who came from Northwestern University, it has an incredible drama program. And she came back to Tucson to teach and start a theater company. And I started doing plays there and training and then Summerstock and moved to Chicago because at that time it was Chicago or Seattle that were the great theater cities. And I had a play to go do in Chicago. So I moved there with it. I had friends there. And so that's how I started. And I, by the way, I did leave having dropped out with incurring, having incurred so much student debt that, that I didn't actually pay off my college loans, which were, I think the final check was like $35,000 when I was, or around there when I was 35, when I got on grades, when I finally got a big check that I knew was going to be consistent, you know, my accountant and I were like, all right, let's pay that off. So that was like the expensive lesson, but the resilience I just loved doing it. And it is certain. And I think there was also like, I, I definitely had a lot of great support and some great teachers, beautiful casting directors and people that believed in me. And my brother and I, uh, my one brother, I have two brothers, two sisters, but my one brother was, you know, was closest in age. We were very close. We were roommates in New York and he, and even before we lived together, he was just always my champion and always encouraging me. So, I mean, I waitress, I moved from Chicago to New York with my equity card and my SAG card and, and luckily an agent, but I had so many waitress. I had three waitressing jobs at once when I first lived there. And every time I got a job, I was like, see you suckers. Bye. And then I'd be like, can I get some shifts back? You know, or, I mean, I did everything I painted. I was like, okay, I'm not a waitress anymore. I'm not going to tempt. I had to do how decorative painting. I considered dog walking, except there was a lot of poop. I was like, no, it's not for me. It was just, but I, I, there's, I think at that time anyway, there was no such thing as like sudden fame. There was no internet. There was, 
it, it have to be a bit of a masochist. You have to really go, <laughs> there's like the perfect combination of self-loathing and low self-esteem, but also tenacity and courage and like, oh, hell no, I am, I'm doing this. And, um, and I think one of the other things that might be interesting or not to know is that when I moved to LA and even before that in New York, you know, there's this, you were saying like, oh, because you were working, but nothing like as big as Grey's Anatomy or something like that, or Kicking and Screaming was my first studio film. And, but what, what I realized when I moved to LA that nobody knows about, not even, I didn't know about, and I was in the business, is that there's sort of this secret, at least then, this middle class or upper middle class of actors that were always working and writers and that you never really may never hear from because they were doing pilots that didn't go or series that came and went, but they were making really great money and um, having a pretty great career and lifestyle with actors, writers, and directors, especially in television, because that there's a lot of stuff that, you know, would get made in the traditional format of pilots and then not go. So there was this way to have a really good kind of life. And, and then, you know, but you still want, like, there's that next thing and the next, you know, and then, if you're lucky, yeah. you get you get. A you big... want to be visible, yeah. right? Like, I mean, making pilots that don't run. I think yeah. that I remember the moment when I, I understood that to have a career in the industry that I wanted to be a part of, I had to integrate my shame around wanting to be visible. Yeah, that there was this bit of me as an actor that was like. Oh no, I don't, I don't want that. And it was like, hang on a second. These two things can't go hand in hand. I mean, perhaps they can for some very, very, uh, long, long running theater actors that really feel, but for me, I can only speak for myself. I, I remember the moment very clearly when I had to deeply accept the fact that I needed to have the confidence to say, yes, I'm willing to be seen and really seen. But if you are being cast in pilots that then don't don't run eventually that's going to kind of grate on your, on your oh, desire yeah. to go to the next step well you always wanted again this was a different time this was a time where you know you could but i'm just saying financial survival too you could live a good life you could do one pilot a year and even if it didn't you always hope that it goes and you hope that it's successful and you hope that the series runs for years but you there was a time where you could do one and that would you'd be set for sort of the year like financially you weren't like oh my god how am I going to make it how am I going to pay my rent um but always you want things to go and I think that is what you're talking about is being seen that desire to be seen that's like a healthy entitlement and I think that if you maybe I'm not going to yeah. guess about you but I'm Irish Italian so there's a lot of built-in shame and you know, here in Australia, there's the tall yeah. poppy syndrome. I'm sure they've got that. I mean, there's that. And like, oh, you don't want to, you don't think, you don't, you're not so great. Don't think you're so great. So there's like a little inner, uh, and there's still a little, I would say by inner communist. Like I just like, I love ensemble theater. I love ensemble shows. I like being part of as opposed to the star of. I really, so there's still a part of me that feels maybe safer or just enjoys more the group as opposed yeah. to front, yeah. you know? Yeah. You just mentioned financial security, and you obviously are also a business owner of the of the boyfriend perfume, which um, sort of like incredibly inspiringly. If Google is right, you you started after a, a, a very upsetting breakup, and you thought, "Oh, I miss his smell." I know I'm just going to make my own. I'm just like, I mean, it's, it's like the most genius idea ever. I miss <laughs> my boyfriend, but rather than try and get another boyfriend or get him back, I'm going to make a scent for all women everywhere, so that they can. And I've always been a massive fan of of quite musky male yeah. scents. If, if anything, with a perfume, I would choose 
a, a more masculine scent than a feminine one. And I and I know I'm not alone by that. And this kind of gender regimented, all girls should be sweetened, yeah. you know, full of roses. I think it's fantastic that you're pushing out this alternative. You own that business 100%. My first question around it is, did you set that up just because... As, as, as revenge and as to and to own and to own your own to get your to get your nose back or did you want to be financially secure no it was neither of those this was a total creative experiment it was inspired by a breakup but actually the breakup was not a terrible breakup it was actually very amiable amiable or amicable either way one of those a words that's grammatically correct we were friends after and he was the venture capitalist and he was the one when i told him i told him the idea He's like, you should, instead of doing, you know, a co, um, you know, a licensing deal, why don't you own it and do it like, like a Hollywood model, like make the pilot. If it sells, like invest your own money in it, then go get a loan from the bank and go from there. And so I did that. And for me, it was more like, oh, I miss him. I miss that, 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 that sexy boyfriend smell. And I was in, it was very specific. I was in Jeffrey's in New York, which no longer exists. This great department store. It used to be on 14th street. And I was walking through the fragrance section, which was vast. They all are. And there's this giant poster of Sarah Jessica Parker with her like second launching her second fragrance or something. I'm like, Oh, there's, and I thought about this. I'll maybe I'll go to the men's fragrance counter and just have a, have a sniff. And I'm like, boyfriend, I'm like, I miss my boyfriend. I'm like, oh, who? And then all these taglines, just creative story. It was like, who needs a boyfriend to have a boyfriend? Oh, my mother loves my boyfriend. My husband loves my boyfriend. My girlfriends love my boyfriend. And I was just like, that would be such a great name. And I'm like, oh, there's too many fragrances. The rational brain took over. Too many fragrances, oversaturated, literally, figuratively, no way. That that name would never be available. Boyfriend jeans, boyfriend bags were already in the site. And then the idea... And this sort of nuzzly, sexy scent, which um, the only thing I had smelled like in the common market at this time, way back, this was like in 2009, 10, the only thing that was out that was sort of like, this is it, that had a visceral response was uh, Le Lebeau had, this is before they had fragrance, they had candles and they had Santal 39 or whatever it was in, it was in the Gramercy Park Hotel in New York. And I just remember walking in and you'd get this like it was so sexy and I was like that's like I want to feel that and it's such a visceral sense thing so I had started it was creative and then I was like called my lawyer I'm like just see if this IP is available and it was and I just took that as a green light and then I talked to my agent at the time and we just had there were a lot of green lights which was just sort of like okay and I went and sold it in the room to HSN, who um, the woman who just taken over was wanting to focus on celebrity and fragrance. I, but I really had started as a brand, a lifestyle brand. And then Sephora had just wanted to focus their year on fragrance. So it all sort of aligned. And I made it and financed it myself. I wanted to do web commercials. This was before Twitter. It was before Instagram, anything. I wanted to try to do this experiment and see if I could promote it solely on social media, like leveraging my fan base and celebrity on from the shows that I was doing from at that time, private practice and grace. So that was it. And I just want to correct, like, just to make really clear, I am now co-owner. I um, am 50% owner with um, my digital guru, Luigi Piccarazzi. Um, he owns digital media management and he was my partner digitally from the beginning in the experiment of promoting this on social media and, um, just this is when Twitter came out and trying to do that. So we, we are 50% partners now. Yeah. So I can focus on creative. Yeah. 
Hence why I said Google. I mean, you know, so many. I feel so honoured to be able to have people that live across the <laughs> pond, as we say, or you're at the moment currently in Perth. I, I, I hear you've taken up sheep shearing as your new... As your new as oh, your yes, new. look at me. <laughs> but I feel so honoured. But it does mean that often I'm gathering facts from, from the wonderful, yet often incorrect... Google. I think it's really inspiring for for women. And and of course, you already had a platform, but I love the story about ownership and about, you know, being brave enough to follow it on your own and not be codependent. And also the God nods. Yeah. I love the God nods. I look for the God nods. I'm like, I want to do this thing. And there's like, and everyone's like, yeah, that's okay. And if I get so many of those, I'm like, I'm not going to do the thing. If I do a thing and the God nods keep coming, then I'm like, I love that. I've not heard of God nods. I love that. That's really good. That's great. God nods are when things happening. My brother says that God's jokes are when little children fall over. I'm not sure. I'm not sure about that one. I prefer the God nods. Um, Speaking of children, Kate, you've been very inspiring for me um, in your conversation around being a child-free woman. And you had the onset of early menopause, which you've spoken about quite openly. But for people that are listening that don't know what that journey was for you, can you just kind of tell us a little bit about it? Long story short, which was one day when I was probably 38 and I was in the, in in like the peak of grays, 37, 38. Um, like that was like after the whole world sort of was seeing it and it was out there and and, and I was working tons. And my sister, my older sister called and said, Hey, you should get your numbers checked because I'm going through early menopause. And she was you know, at that time still considered early, she's six years older than me, but I was like, stop trying to scare me, you know? <laughs> but, and then, um, lo and behold, you know, and I'd gone to my OBGYN and he was like, Oh, did you watch that, you know, show the Oprah episode where everybody's like freaking out about their FSH? And I'm like, no, I'm just my sister. Da, da, da. And lo and behold, I did have really high, I think it's high FSH. I don't even remember because it's been so long now. Um, but in my window was just like closing and it really, it was really terrible, uh, for me. It was such a shocking and, you know, I went to, I tried to go to, um, fertility person. I tried to, I think it really inspired some decisions that were, there's that panic, you know, and I think that no one tells you, like, I, I feel very, fortunate to be like the first, like really the post pill generation. Like we're really, I am my, at least I'm, I'm older than you, but I'm the first generation. Like I didn't have to get married. I didn't, I had a chance to go after my dreams and go into the workplace and, and get birth control and, um, and follow my dreams and work. But nobody says, Oh, by the way, you know, this might happen. Or actually the window to have children at the best time is probably you know, in your twenties, <laughs> you know, mm. or like, that's the reality. And no one yeah. said that. They need to teach and, and that they do. School. It's like, this is the reality. And mm. so, um, and even by then it was too, you know, the technology wasn't even there to like freeze eggs or any of that, um, let alone embryos or anything. So it just wasn't, it was too late and it was a really devastating, it's a hard thing. I, I don't, it'd be difficult to accept. And then you just do. And then I, and then I, when I really looked at it, I never wanted to do it alone. And also I was at a time where still when I was starting out and even in my early mid thirties, if you got 
pregnant on a TV show, you would be written out like, sorry, you don't have a job. Now it's different. Now they shoot around you. They give you maternity leave. There's a whole different culture around it, but it wasn't that then. So that was also like, I'm laser focused on, you know, getting, getting to where, where I want. And I do like, I always, I refer to myself as a late bloomer. I don't think of that as being pejorative. I'm like, but I don't regret any of my process. I don't regret any of my journey. I love that. I, I got better and better. I probably, I didn't know how to audition even. I didn't, I just got, I feel very fortunate, you know? Um, but it was a real grief process for me. And then a real thing of like, being very, getting to know myself. Like, yeah, I knew I didn't want to do it alone. And if for a while I thought I'd adopt and then I was like, I don't want to adopt. I don't want to do this alone. I'm having, a, I'm having a different life. And I've had the real pleasure of being a step parent to different kids and having kids in my life. And cause I think that's important to have people of different ages in your life. You learn so much, your heart grows like, you know, like the Grinch a hundred times. <laughs> So mm-hmm. well, I mean, it's important to keep us young. Otherwise, you know, yeah. I think we just we we can't keep up with TikTok or something like that. There's this new platform <laughs> yeah. apparently. But I I also had I mean, so when I was 39, 40, I had a similar experience. And just for anyone that's listening who has not yet had any insights into this, the um uh the FSH that Kate mentioned is your follicle stimulating hormone. And then when you get tested, you also get your AMH tested. Your AMH is the amount of eggs that you have left. And while there is some research being done into the potential that actually this concept that we only have a certain amount of eggs in our life may not need to be the future for women, that they're looking into stem cell research and stuff like that. At the moment, what happens is you get your AMH tested and you get told essentially in that lifespan of your eggs, how many you've got left. And I went around age 39, 40, and I was told that I only had two follicles on each side, which is really low. And, and I may have always only had two follicles on each side, always, or potentially I might have had lots and they've depleted. But what they absolutely told me was that my AMH was below 0.5. And I think if you're below 0.5, then essentially your fertility is waning. And I really identify with what you've said. I went into a panic. I was like, I need to have a child or maybe I need to freeze my eggs. But I just remember it being acutely difficult. And I identify with everything you've said. I've worked out that actually didn't want to have a child on my own. Somebody sat next to me at dinner and I was talking to them about what was going on. And how I was feeling about it, because it's a very difficult time that late 30s to early 40s, everyone is asking you, are you going to, I mean, you know, now you've got to do it now. And I I sat next to someone and I was telling them sharing and they said to me, oh, you wanted to have a a child with someone you loved. And I was like, yeah, that's right. And the timing hasn't worked out on that. So that's okay. You know, I I think, I think the thing for me that is really, really important to have conversations around though, Kate, is that that pressure I felt under by my family and my peers, I think is completely unacceptable. And I I really wanted to ask you for women, we have a lot of, because I'm child-free, we have a lot of women in the community who haven't got children, but I find that women who do have children also really identify with this conversation. How did you manage that kind of judgment and that pressure from society in terms of what is a socially normative experience for women, i.e. you must have children? I didn't feel, maybe it's because I was already sort of a public person by then. I got lots of um, validation for being an actress and being, 
I felt very seen in a lot of ways. And I was so in the, in that place in life. And, but I was very, what I was conscious of was, so I didn't feel pressured, but, but I did feel shame. And I felt like, like I felt very acutely aware as, as a woman in the culture, you you become invisible if you're not, unless you're Oprah, you know, if you're not incredibly successful at what you do, your career or a mother, then you're like, what are you? That was the message that I felt like. I felt like as a woman, you're not enough just being a woman. Like if just, if you're just a regular gal that was like living life and working or living or loving or traveling or doing whatever that you, the only way that you're like, sort of, I felt socially acceptable is if you were achieving high achieving in your career or a mother. That's that, that's my, that was my experience and my perception. I don't feel that way anymore, but again, how can I be tr- totally objective? I, you know, I also feel like as women age, we become invisible in the world and in the culture, but I also feel I've got a different take on it because I am visible because of what I do for a living, you know, but that's, does that, that's a rambling answer to your question it's a great answer i mean i don't think everyone wants the same visibility or or needs as we discussed at the beginning the same visibility as as we want and need kate but i think or value i should say value yeah value shame but you said shame yeah what is the shame like i've i've had to like really do in fact with with a therapist i really had to look at it like what is the shame that i'm feeling around the fact that i'm not fitting in what what is it is it is it ancestral is it that women throughout history are not considered a woman unless they are a mother so I don't think it's the same shame as if you don't make it as an actor. As an example, it's a really good kind of like, Oh, yeah, you know, yeah. I think you no, feel no. disappointed, and of course you feel ashamed you haven't made it. It's not the same shame as being a woman who has not had children. And there's a bit of a shame. I don't know about the shame. That's a good question. That's probably something that is therapy forever. I don't know, because I think shame is just, it's ancestral, it's it's experiential, it's biological, it's it's biographical. There's so much that contributes to that, in my opinion. Again, I'm speaking for myself, but I don't even know if it's, but I felt deep sadness and grief. And then, but I feel like, and I still, sometimes I still find that I'm like, oh, it's just that thing of like, I think that it becomes, as I get older, it's just existential, you know? And you're like, what is my value? What am I okay as a human? And that's something that's completely separate from being childbearing or mother or an actor, like, am I, you know, that's a spiritual, that gets, that's a spiritual question of like, am I all right? Just who I am. And and what is my experience on this planet? And then it just becomes other stuff. Life keeps going, you know, and then you get health issues. You get like, I've got great things and really challenging things, marriage, divorce, you know, all sorts of stuff that go, Oh, okay. Now this is how, and you just keep stepping you keep moving forward. That's the big thing. You just keep going. And, and my life is better than ever. That's the good news is that it, you think to yourself, am I ever going to get over that? You know, yes, of course you do. <laughs> like, I don't, I, you know, but there's certain moments you're like, oh, I never got, I didn't get to do that. I would have loved to experience being pregnant. I would have loved to experience, you know, having a child breastfeeding, like, but that just wasn't, I've also gotten to do crazy, wonderful, insane things, you know? And I think, the answer to any of this stuff too is in my experience is being of service in the world. How are you of service? How are you, how do you, how do I show up in the world and for others and to help? And, you know, I agree. You know, I completely, that makes sense. I completely yeah. agree. 
We're going to take a very quick ad break. And before we do, I wanted to let you know that this podcast was produced in association with Albright, the leading career network for women. Got a mission, a five-year plan, or an outrageous dream? Albright will have your back. They had mine. Visit www.albrightcollective.com to join their free community today or download the Albright app available in the App Store. Albright, a global sisterhood for ambitious women. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. At the beginning in the quiz, you mentioned menopause for you had been a natural experience. And you've said you came into mm. a menopause. Actually, you haven't said. I said you had early menopause. Yeah. Does it always coincide? I don't know this. So, so if your fertility is waning earlier, then I'm going to say the word normal or typical, let's say typical. Does that always put you into early menopause? Do you know, Kate? I don't know. I, I, I wish I did, but I also feel like, it, you know, you're saying then typical, but it has changed, Mika. It's more and more women, just like young girls are developing younger and getting their periods younger. More and more women are experiencing fertility challenges at a much younger age. Some women are going through early menopause in their late 20s. Like, it's like, who knows what's happening and what the causes are. I would, I would suspect the hormones and food change I and mean, who knows? I mean, I, I would think lots of things, but, but, um, and by the way, I did not easily go into it. I did not quietly go into the night with the menopause. I was freaking out. I was like, what is happening to my body? And I did for a minute, try bioidentical, like little, put a little estrogen here, put a little, and it was like playing roulette is how I felt. But, and I just eventually was like, this isn't what I want to do. I didn't want to go on a pill. This is for me. I didn't want to go on a pill. I didn't want to, I wanted to try to just go with it and accept it. And it was really hard. And what happens is you make changes. Like I made lots of changes in my life, in my exercise, in my eating habits and lifestyle, but it takes a lot of resistance to get into acceptance. (laughs) It takes a lot of like fighting it and then go until you go, all right, uncle, 
what's happening? I guess I'm hot now. Oh, I want to take my sweater off. <laughs> you become like this person, like, like, oh, yeah, if I could, I'm about this close to having dinner in this restaurant in my bra. And I don't <laughs> like, you become this crazy person. And, and, but I also was like, like, you know, and that we should talk about that would lead in honestly to why I don't take hormone replacement now. And I'll be 55 in October. And I don't because of my, the brain tumor I had, which they don't know a lot about it. Um, maybe people will listen and go, I know more than you know. Um, but I had a benign meningioma, thank goodness. But it happens, it's twice as common to happen to women as men. Um, they think it might be hormonally related. It it happens to women generally between their for, between their 40s and 60s. Mine, again, was benign, so they were able to remove it, and I'm alive and, and moving and talking to you today, which is awesome. But I was told by my neurologist, by my uh, brain surgeon, to not dabble in, in hormones, um, that it could help grow uh, you know, grow back. So I don't do that. Um, and I find other things are really effective exercise, um, meditation, um, a spiritual life. Like I, I have a totally, I, I mean, I did all the things that you, you know, say you're going to do if you think you might die. Like, I'm not going to work so much. I'm going to spend more time with people I love and travel and do the things that I love. And so that was a great gift. One of the, one of the many, many gifts of that. But, um, yeah, so I personally don't, that's why I don't take hormones. What were the things that you did that you felt worked? And I do think it's a very personal journey, but you, you've mentioned changing your diet and exercise. What, what were the key things, would you say? Was there anything in, in those adjustments that you made that you, you would say were invaluable? Well, um, listen, I don't diet because I had an eating disorder when I was much younger that, thank God, I got through. Um, but I can't deprive myself, you know, I, I can't go every time I try to diet, it backfires. And I'm like, give me this. I love potato chips. I'm not a big sweet. I do love some chocolate once in a while. But if I'm like, I really want a piece of cake, I'm going to eat that. But I try, I love wine. I love coffee. I love all of the things, but I just try to eat balanced and, um, enjoy it and not, but I used to, I mean, when I was first working, Grace, I was smoking a pack of cigarettes a day. And even on um, private practice, I would start every day with a venti quad cappuccino from Starbucks. That was my drink. I the, One of the PAs would go get it. It was like this giant thing. And then I'd go home. And it was also part of trying to steal time. I felt like my whole thing was like, I'm working 80 hours a week sometimes. I just want to go home and have my time back. I want to have a cigarette. I want to have a martini. I want to watch TV. I want to play rock band. I want to do, I want to steal back time. And I think that was, so it's not just diet and exercise and not having copious amounts of caffeine and ruining my adrenals um, and, you know, smoking my way through life. But, but all, <laughs> yes. Yeah. I mean, I think before that I was very alpha. I mean, I did. And I used to, I think of how I dealt with, you know, I think creativity and anxiety are, you know, very closely. There's a lot of 
alignment there are the you know different sides of the same coin maybe and and how I dealt with it was like I just did a lot of stuff all the time you know I'm gonna do my tv show and work 70 hours a week and then I'm gonna actually make a fragrance and start that it's like I was burning the candle at both ends broke the candle in half lit those ends on fire and I was just like let's go let's remodel a house let's merge a family and relationship and just bring it on and that's how sort of how I dealt with anxiety is I just kept really busy and and um and creative and then that my body was like sorry or my spirit who knows what it was it was like bye I'm done and and that's um and I think that's one of the beautiful things of frustrating but it may be early menopause was the beginning of that but when the body is like it is the great arbiter and so that's what it stops working. You sort of have to listen and make changes. Otherwise, it doesn't matter what, you know. Yeah, so it's been a massive gift. My whole life is changed and open. And that's always how it's been. I have my ideas and then life happens. And you, everything that happens seems to be much more extraordinary and like beyond my wildest dreams than whatever I, I seem to think I really need or I cook up on my own. So, so Kate, you had to have a complete like an about turn in your, in your life and change everything that you, that you did. Do you, you know, you mentioned earlier for you personally, that there was some fear around becoming invisible. I guess with a diagnosis like that, you're probably not thinking about this, but was there ever a moment where you were frightened that these life changes would make you less visible? Okay. Yeah. So to, to clarify, I think that it because it's such a multifaceted issue, but it's ultimately existential. But I think as for me, this is my experience as a woman in the culture, not being a mother and not and feeling like as one ages, you know, and I don't think it's just Hollywood or whatever, that I started to feel like just as a female in the culture, you become invisible. It was it felt different to me in to the degree that as an actor and, and a very fortunately a working actor, a lot of the time I, you know, people were paid to listen to me <laughs> and watch me and interact with me. And, um, so I, I didn't feel that to that extent, you know, like, but I felt just in the macro and the culture that there wasn't a lot of value for women as we age, whether you're a mother or not, but I was like, just became acutely aware of that. And then I think, on a totally separate note, when, so when you go through menopause, whether it's early or not, and more and more women, as we discussed, are going through it, some women in their late twenties, it's a window that's shut. You're like, Oh, and I've had the luxury to a large extent of, you know, freedom and choice. And if you work hard and you get to do all these things and suddenly that's just gone. And so that's a big one too, you know, and, you know, equally now I'm really, I'm very satisfied with my life. I'm made total peace with it. I think what's really interesting around it is that you, I'm noticing that I get less attention in life in general, that somehow or other, I had a meeting. I'm going to say this out loud. I had a meeting with a podcast host. I'm not going to say who it is. They're a major, major, major music and podcast brand. And they opened by telling me that they were only interested in Generation Z. And I was like, you know, that I have to process that and go through that. And that's really what you're talking about. So maybe it's it's not just for women. Maybe it's actually also for men. Ageism. Yeah, yeah. ageism. There's not a lot of value in the culture. Think about it. When they even talk about archetypes in fairy tales or in archetypes in ancient history, you know, you've got what? The 
the girl, the, 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 the young woman or the princess, the queen, and then it's like crone. It goes right to crone, which crone is cool, but it does like, wait a second. Is there anything in between? Like, you know, well, also all the invisible fairy godmother, you know, the fairy godmother who basically is like, you know, she's behind the scenes helping out the young woman. When you, when you made your massive life change, Kate, you, you, you did have um, a diagnosis of a benign brain tumor and, and, one of the reasons that you you transformed your life was to try to look after your body more. But I want to touch on the fact that you had to fight for that diagnosis because at the moment, uh, we just did a a massive survey in the UK and 57% of women said that they felt they've had a misdiagnosis from their doctor. And can you just, can you just tell us a bit about that experience? Yeah, it's, it was, really gutting and challenging to say the least. And, you know, I know, I think the New York times just did a thing on it too, about how many people, uh, females are talked out of there, told that they're depressed or that they're this or that they're that, or that they're whatever. So what happened with me and I had in uh, Los Angeles at the time, a female GP, but I didn't go to her. I don't know why I just was like, Oh, I'm going to go to, cause in, you know, in the States, you don't have to have a um, referral from a GP. You can go right to a specialist. So when I first had a, started having these symptoms, it was very nebulous in the sense that it was like, I was tired, like exhausted. I was like, Oh, I just burned myself out. I was executive producing and starring in a show and I was working out really hard. And I was on this you know, for the first time in my life, I did one of those, like a, a diet. I did like food delivery, like a real actress. I was like, all right, I'm going to get someone to get in a specific body shape. This was when I was doing bad judge. And then I thought, oh, I just worked too hard. I'm going to go back to just Pilates. And then the Pilates teacher is like, you're off balance. Your whole right side is dipping. I'm like, no, I'm right. And then all these subtle things. So I thought it was menopause again, like that was sort of back, like in a different way. And so I got a really great referral to this amazing woman doctor in Santa Monica at the time. And they have this massive extensive questionnaire and I ticked a lot of the boxes. So I thought, okay, I've got to, I guess I'm going to try hormones or hormone replacement. And I tried it for a minute, like, like the, you know, bioidentical rubbing, like the creams and things. And that didn't help. And I was like, wait a minute, something's going. And, And I just instinctively was like, I want to get an MRI. I just want to get an MRI, a scan. I hadn't watched any. This is the thing too, that I find this has happened a couple of times with male doctors, respectfully, not all of them, but two in big ways. One, when I was going through infertility, when I was they're like, did you just watch that Oprah show? That was the question I got from my gynecologist. Did you just get freaked out? Cause you watched the Oprah show on infertility? No. To, for this n- neurologist, you know, so I, I get an appointment with a neurologist finally, even after my partner at the time, my boyfriend at the time is like, you're depressed because your show is canceled. You know, even my, my longtime assistant was like, yeah, I guess she's really a diva. She wants me to drive her around until he got in the car with me and he noticed I couldn't drive because I was swerving to the right, everything to the right. All my depth perception was just sort of going, but it was subtle enough that I was like, oh, you know, you know, Yeah. And five cups of coffee, still want to be in bed all day, you know, but disoriented. I started canceling meetings. Then it was just physically, I couldn't balance. Um, 
So I go to meet with this prominent neurologist, even though even my own boyfriend at the time is like, you're just depressed. You should be on meds because your show, I'm like, I've had shows canceled before. That's not what this is. So I go to the neurologist. My assistant drives me because I can't drive. I go in there. I'm able to be articulate and talk. He does like pushes my arm down. I'm able to hold it up. He's like, look, (laughs) you're a woman in um, your forties. You're an actress. You're not working. You're going through menopause, um, and he just slides quietly slides a prescription across the table for a very high dose of Zoloft, which I, I was like, <laughs> yeah. I said respectfully, I have a shrink, and he can prescribe. That's not what's happening. I just want an MRI. Why? What do you think you're going to find? I said I don't know. I just I just want one before I commit to any kind of medication. I want to see what's going on. I, why? Because I'm good to talk to you for this 15 minutes and I'll be in bed for the rest of the day because I can't drive because I can't balance. I I can't uh, cognitively. I was having problems. I couldn't focus, but it all was anyway. So he finally acquiesced, but it was as if I had asked him to build the MRI machine and, um, <laughs> you know, and so, um, and we didn't even rush it. It was like probably, I don't know, week and a half or two weeks later, the night before I had the MRI, my boyfriend tossed me a ball in the pool and I fractured my right because I had no depth perception. So now I was going in for an MRI and and an x-ray for my broken finger. And sure enough, you know, I get the MRI and I said to them, I go, I, I said, hey, can you tell me anything? No, no, we're going to have to send the slides to your neurologist. We'll be able to tell you. Well, as soon as I got out of the, the tube, they're like, the radiologist wants to see you. And I had a massive tumor, 5.2 centimeters in my head. It's like the size of a, of, a, of a small lemon. My brain stem line was like a parabola. It was literally curved like that because there was so much swelling on like pushed over and swelling all around. I just started getting shooting pains in my left eye. Two days later, I had it out, you know, in surgery. So thank God they were able to get it. Thank God it was benign. Yeah. So just in the timeline of Kate getting the call from her sister and saying, hey, look, I'm having early menopause, get checked. So then you go and get checked. When you started to go into early menopause, did you change your lifestyle at that point? Is that when you started to give up the venti coffee? So by the time <laughs> you've got the, 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 and the cigarettes, which I, I mean, smoking, I love smoking, but it is bad for us. We can't do it. It wasn't straight away. No. Right. So were you quite well in your body? Cause one of the things I'm really interested in is how, as we, toxinate our body with different things with stress so there's gaslighting where you get sent away from a doctor and told there's nothing wrong with you and then there's also being deeply true to yourself and honoring yourself as a very um, intelligent intuitive being that if we don't put too much toxins in our body and if we do really get to know our bodies then we can say like would you have noticed 10 years before do you think some of the more subtle things that were going on that's a really great, great question. I think I would have eventually because even though I was smoking and drinking as early, maybe not, but what I can't, I can't even begin to, I will tell you that, look, there's no question that I got more conscious the older I got. So I was di- like, I was diagnosed. I went through early menopause. It would have been 38, 38. So the tumor came or I, that was at 48 in the interim. I slowly got healthier. I was just like, it's not good. But I had no consciousness. There was no, no one saying, hey, all that caffeine is going to shoot, just ruin your adrenals. 
there's no no one talking about that. They'd say, oh, that's a lot of coffee. But no one, okay, smoking's bad, sure. But what I, what I started was more my mental health and emotional health and working that I didn't, for me, I didn't want to be addicted to anything. So I was like, I got to quit smoking. And I quit, you know, cold turkey with some acupuncture needles in my ear. And then I just got really into meditation. So I started meditating and I was doing Vedic or, you know, meditation. So, um, twice a day, 20 minutes. And that changed my life. That also made me realize I don't want to do this show anymore. I don't want to do this character anymore. I don't want to work like this anymore. I got to make a change. So all of these were subtle and slow, but yeah. So who's to say, like, it's a good question, but yeah, but I was also aware, I became more and more aware. I mean, as an actor, not to sound cheesy or trite, but our bodies are our instruments, right? So you kind yeah. of, I think I think that that is that is right, but also looking after ourselves in terms of demanding yes. diagnosis, I think it's really important. When you took the results of the MRI to the neurologist, did he apologize to you? He would have been culpable then and open to suit. Okay, what he said, I think verbatim, because um, actually my memory is actually pretty intact, but it was oh wow wow, this is, it's really good that uh, you got a scan. Okay, okay. And then it turned out his mother had exactly the same kind of tumor. Wow. A benign meningioma. And, had, and he had, had her brought over from Canada to have the surgery in LA, you know, at Cedars. And I'm like, but he couldn't say, I'm so sorry. No way. No, you can't because that's open to like a whole suit. So he was just like, wow, oh, it's really good um, that you got that. Wow, it's great that you got... Yeah. I mean, two days later, it would have been sooner, but they had to, you know, I, they put me on anti-seizure meds straight away. I was very fortunate. I hadn't had a seizure. Um, and yeah. And then I was in surgery and they, and they got it. But at that time you're like, we don't even know. We think it's put up benign, but we won't know until they get in there. We won't know if we can get it all because it could be attached to an artery or blood vessels, in which case we cannot. It was like, I, but I was so relieved and in such a daze by that point, but just so relieved that it was something because people were starting to treat me like I was crazy, including doctors, including my own boyfriend, including everyone, my friends, you know, when your friends look at you like, Oh, you know, Houston, we got a problem like that. It's a terrible feeling, you know, it's very lonely and to say the least. So I was so relieved that I was like, mm. okay, you know, mm. It didn't occur to me that they actually take your skull off to take it out. I was like, hold on, what? <laughs> like, yeah, it was pretty Well, shocking, I wanted to but... just say that, actually, Kate, because we're talking about it in such a kind of uh, disassociated way. But the truth is, is that you have brain surgery. And it's like, mm. you know, <laughs> you're actually not a doctor in real life, weirdly, because I think no. everyone thinks you might no. be. <laughs> Currently, I think you're maybe being a sheep farmer. But, <laughs> but it's... um. <laughs> It's mostly canola and wheat. Okay, Mika. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> I've just got these, this sort of like impression of you like sharing the sheep. I'm quite jealous, by the way. So, and then they told you you couldn't take HRT, right? So you can't take HRT yeah. because of that diagnosis because... Right. And they're not sure if it's hormonal, but they suspect it is. I mean, they did some research on it. I don't know how many years, but they did some research that they're like, is it cell phones? Is it, but it would indicate that it's hormonal because most of the people that get this are women between 40 and their forties and sixties. Um, so I, it would indicate that it is somehow hormonally connected. Now, I don't know. It could be years of taking birth control. It could be, who knows? I was also on 
for years on that birth control called NuvaRing. You know, I don't know if you remember that, but then they took that off the market because they're like, oh yeah, that's actually not really good for you. So it's just, I do feel like for women's health, um, and I'll get back to the recovery, but it's absolutely critical to advocate and, and, and push. Um, and not only to trust your instincts, but what I would do, because I would sometimes get nervous going, I dissociate when I go into an appointment, especially if it was around, Oh, you're going through early menopause or you have a brain tumor. I would bring a girlfriend with me. I was like, can you come? Cause I'm going to forget to ask questions. And cause I just get so freaked out. So will you come in and be with me? I will never forget my friend Corinne came in with me with her little Yorkie <laughs> to like the fertility doctor in LA. And she's like, so hold on. <laughs> and um, asking the questions that I would forget to ask. So I really, I encourage that whether you have a partner or a friend just to bring, because it's, I think a lot that we expect ourselves, there's such a cultural conditioning that doctors are experts, lawyers are experts, you know, these, you don't, so you shouldn't ask any questions. And it's like, no, I mean, and then if you, and it's also be kind to yourself. Like I'm a, I consider myself a pretty strong, assertive person, but in those situations where it's your health and you feel really vulnerable and emotional, it's great to have support with you, you know? Mm-hmm. I'm so pleased that you said no to the antidepressants, because as you know, the definition of hysteria was a diagnosis given to women since I think pretty much around the Victorian era, but essentially it was kind of suggested that women's issues were often psychoemotional. So what you did by advocating for yourself and saying, actually, I'm not going to take antidepressants. I want the diagnosis first. Give me, check me out, do everything, do all the tests, do the blood test, do the MRI. And then I will take your antidepressants if I feel I need to, you know, I mean, I'm not for or against them, but so tell me a little about the recovery, Kate, for you, because I feel that was 10, no, five years ago. That was five years ago. No, almost seven now. Oh my gosh. It'll be seven years. Actually. Oh yeah. It was just seven years in, uh, would have been June 4th. Yes. So seven years ago, um, it was really facile in some ways and then incredibly difficult in others. So what happens is the body sort of starts recovering first, but then there's a delayed reaction of shock and emotional, like total psycho trauma. Like it was very traumatic. So, um, first you like, they make sure you can walk. And I wanted to get out of the hospital as quickly as I could. So I spent two nights in the hospital and then got home and, you know, you start walking a little bit cause it's a strange thing, but your muscles immediately atrophy. It's like, I looked like a little egg. It's like this little round body. And my, like, like, like that, my legs and arms were like little spindly toothpicks. And I don't, I think it's the anesthesia and the trauma, but, and I was still on anti-seizure meds, which are steroids for the swelling. So the anti-seizure meds are often the Keppra can be known as like doggy downers. They can be real depressive. People are like, Oh, you gotta be careful. You might get really depressed. But I was had this euphoria of the decadron, which is a steroid that also killed the blood supply to my hips. So I had to have, that was a gift of brain surgery. I had to have both my hips replaced later. Um, but it was, it was a lot, you know, I went from vacillating from totally euphoric. I'm like, I think I'm spiritually enlightened. Did they take out like all darkness when they took that tumor out? But that was the steroids. And then the Capra, which were like, whoa, it's just, but it's still nothing was as bad 
as how I felt before I had it out, which I was just like, this is awful. Like just not feeling well at all. So it was like a physical recovery and then the emotional recovery. And what happens is it's, they liken it to PTSD with veterans, the trauma and for brain trauma, a lot of it, the emotional stuff comes after. And like, I was very sensitive to sound, very sensitive emotionally, very, I remember I, I, oh gosh, I was supposed to do a movie and they don't want to tell you too much about what happens because they don't want to, your brain is the plasticity of your brain. They don't want to influence your recovery. So they kind of don't tell you, but then I had a friend who suggested this great thing, which was she knew someone who had had the same surgery as me with my surgical team 10 years before. So she became what I call my brain buddy. And we never met for two years. We hadn't met. We just talk on the phone. And she really helped me because she'd give me these sort of goal, like mileposts, like, okay, in a month, your skull might sink. Like you actually will, like it will sink. So don't freak, freak out. Like you're, or in six weeks, your hair is going to fall out from the anesthesia. Just like giving me things to expect. But then in three months, you're going to, like month one, you're going to start feeling better. Month two, you're going to feel, three months, you're going to feel significantly better. Six months, you're going to feel significantly better. So these were these things that were like incredibly helpful. I was very also aware of not trying to get ahead of my recovery. I was like, I did, I took it very slow. I wasn't like, and nobody who was going through it, who didn't go through it, couldn't understand that. They're like, don't try to work out too fast. And I'm like, yeah, I have no, no, I was doing neurophysiotherapy, like doing things that would start just triggering and strengthening the brain body response and have the brain start talking to the body again. And so, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Oh, Kate, what an amazing story and journey. How are you in your recovery? Uh, I'm great. I do. Here's the thing that I, that's changed since, you know, before I say BT and AT before tumor, after tumor, um, if I get tired, I rest, there's no pushing through. And it used to be part of my recovery was like for many years. And still when I get really fatigued, um, my eyes will just start closing. The lids go down like little awnings. It's like the shop is closing. (laughs) So I rest when I need to. I was really, another thing that I was very adamant about though in my recovery was I, I kept it very secret because I didn't want my industry to think that I, you know what I mean? I wanted, I didn't talk about it publicly until I'd had like two jobs under my belt and could, so there could be no question as to whether I could, you know, still do my work. Um, but I am, yeah, I've changed my life significantly. And I, um, I, my life, living my life comes first work is a part of that, you know, as opposed to the other way around. And I really was one of those people. It's like, if you want to spend time with me, the best way we can do that is if we work together. Otherwise I'm just not going to see you because that's how I lived. You know? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And now you actually spend time. You are, because we've had so many DMs about it. You did do a bit of a like guest restart on Grey's and I've heard yeah. on the internet that you're going back in for this next season. I might go back. We'll see. It's a possibility. But if it happens, it's an incredible storyline, a really important storyline. So we'll let us see. know first, Kate. Crossed. Let us know first. Yeah. My final question, mm. my final question to you, which is the same question we ask everyone, is Kate Walsh, what makes your vagina happy today? <laughs> just you asking that question gave me a little tingle um, i've got tingles too 
Kate, I think I think um, we're like I think we're connected in some way. I actually just auditioned for Bridgerton, so like maybe you're gonna I don't know maybe we can work together one day. I might I might send Shondaland oh a little gosh. bit of a, like an email saying meet from Kate in a show. Anyway, back to you, yeah. Kate Walsh. What makes your vagina happy today? Just exactly what I'm doing now, talking to you, talking to an intelligent, gorgeous woman and about women and women's health and sexuality. Uh, I also just made a big pot of chicken soup that makes me incredibly happy. And I'm, um, and yeah, I would say that I mean, literally even talking about it makes my vagina smile. <laughs> you heard it here first. Chicken soup is the way to make Kate Walsh's vagina happy. That and women. I'm I mean, bl- perfect, now I'm aren't. blushing. You can't tell. <laughs> which far away, <laughs> anyway. Kate Walsh, thank you so much for your time. It's been an honor to chat to you. Likewise, darling. I'm so happy to talk to you. That was Kate Walsh. I'm Mika Simmons. This is the Happy Vagina podcast. Thank you so much for listening and we will see you next week. Thanks for listening, everyone. Don't forget to check out our sponsors for this episode. The exquisitely simple, beautifully designed Beja London for all your lingerie and swimwear needs. www.beja.london Once you've chosen your bra, pour some knickers to match, then use the code THEHAPPYVAGINA at checkout to receive 15% off your first order. That's www.beja.london You're welcome. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.